Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Since the early 80s, I have been involved helping pregnancy centers, writing in support of the rights of the unborn, and even produce materials, audio, visual, and um, recordings to further an awareness of the heinousness of abortion. And I got my children involved early. Some criticized me saying, aren't you afraid your children will be distraught if they see pictures of aborted children, etc." And I said, I hope they get distraught. I want them to be distraught because this is a very disturbing situation. We're talking about millions of lives ended. Well, over the years, I've watched Christians give witnesses, starting and staffing pregnancy centers, standing outside abortuaries, offering to help women who arrive there to help them if they have economic issues, if they don't want to keep their child, even offering to adopt their child. And of course, their pregnancy homes where if Women find themselves pregnant, and so there's there's a lot of response to helping women. I've also witnessed that within the ranks of those who proclaim themselves to be pro-life, there are some very, very polarized opinions as to the best way to end abortion. Well, my guest today is a Christian attorney who has been on the front lines of many issues, concerning God's law word as it relates to the family, the church, and the state. Bradley Pierce is a co-founding attorney of Heritage Defense, where he helps defend the parental rights of Christian homeschooling families around the country against threats by social services. Now, Bradley was homeschooled himself all the way through high school graduation in the late 80s, and then he went on to earn a degree in history and English from Baylor University, And when he was there, he served as student body vice president. He then went on to earn a Juris Doctor degree from Baylor Law School. And, well, sort of the rest is history. He and his wife, Cindy, have 10 children, one on the way. So they have 11 children. And he has been most recently active in the organization Abolish Abortion Texas which is a grassroots effort to mobilize Christians to advocate in the political halls of power for the end of elective abortion in Texas. Now, of course, the hope is that if there is a model in one or a number of states, that this will become something that proliferates in the sense of other states doing the same. I've asked Bradley to come on today to address the question Why is there division in the pro-life community? Bradley, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be with you. Some people may not even be aware of the fact that there's division in the pro-life community. Certainly those who oppose people um, restricting abortion in any sense look at pro-life people as this monolithic group, uh, obviously demonized by those who are in favor of killing unborn children. But I think few people understand, one, why there would be a difference. Why would people have conflict? And what's the roots of it? So could you go into that a bit? 
you know, maybe I'll give a little bit of background on myself and how, and I think that'll kind of show a little bit of of, of the um, the divide here. Um, I was, you know, raised in a Christian home, pro life my whole life. I always voted pro life, and after I got out of law school, I was observing a lot of, and I, I saw pro life bills being pursued in various states, including my home state here of Texas. And there's something about them really troubled me. You know, they were saying, hey, let's let's make the hallways require abortion clinic hallways to be wider and meet surgery center standards and require the doctors to have admitting privileges at hospitals and things like that. And really regulating abortion almost like it was a business or like in like an industry rather than like it, homicide, right? Like murder, mm-hmm. uh, like it was a crime. And so those kind of bills troubled me. It seemed like we were really conceding principles in those or one of those around the same time here in Texas was a 20 week ban on abortion. And again, it just seemed like we were conceding principles. We were, we were bowing down to Roe versus Wade, which was an unconstitutional opinion from the beginning. And anyway, so I was just troubled, but you know, I still continued to support the pro-life movement, vote pro-life. And, um, then in, 2015, I was talking with with some friends, Christian brothers who were just concerned about the direction of things in general in our in our government here in Texas and around the country, and like, what can we do about that? Started getting involved in the Republican Party, and then we decided, hey, why don't we just tackle this abortion issue? Just 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 outlaw it. Roe versus Wade is not the law of the land. Let's stop treating it that way. And so around that same time, I had a friend that had started working as a chief of staff to a Texas state legislator. And my friend, uh, his boss said, hey, go talk to the, the statewide pro-life you know, lobby organizations here in Texas and tell them, hey, I'm thinking about doing a bill that just completely outlaws abortion. Just, you know, forget Roe versus Wade. Uh, let's just outlaw abortion here. And, you know, go see what the pro-life groups say. So my friend went to those groups and they all came, they all gave him the same answer. He came back and told his boss the answer. And then he told me the answer as well. And he said that when he talked to those groups and said, Hey, we're thinking about just doing a bill that completely outlaws abortion. What do you think of that? The answer that he got from those groups was not only would we not support that bill, we would oppose that bill. Hmm. And when my friend told me that a lot of things really I mean, first of all, I was upset, but then a lot of things really clicked for me. Things that I had seen and witnessed and kind of felt kind of became a reality in that moment. So we ended up pursuing a a plank to be on the Texas Republican Party platform that just says to abolish abortion. And lo and behold, it was opposed by the the pro-life organizations. And uh, we ended up getting it on the plank and then we had a bill. And we've had the bill several times. And beyond that, outside of my work with Abolish Abortion Texas, we have another organization called the Foundation to Abolish Abortion that also works outside of Texas, drafting bills for states around the country, helping with policy and and doing training and things like that. And what we've encountered in state after state after state is that the pro-life lobby, that is the organizations that advocate for legislation across the country, they oppose bills that would completely outlaw abortion. They did it before the Dobbs decision overturned Roe, and they're still doing it today. Okay, so some people 
might say there's a disconnect here. Why can these groups, those who want to abolish abortion and those who claim to be pro-life and have been working at it now for decades since the time of Roe v. Wade, why do these groups oppose bills that are proposed or even the rationale that says let's end abortion? Before the Dobbs decision overturned Roe last year, yeah, there were two reasons. Now it's kind of down to one main reason. We were we had kind of two approaches, or one of them that is now moot now that the Dobbs decision over has overturned Roe, is that we believed and we call ourselves abolitionists because we want to make it very clear that we want to abolish abortion, not just regulate it. That we we believe that Roe versus Wade was unconstitutional from the beginning, and this, the Constitution says that this Constitution and laws made in pursuance thereof shall be the supreme law of the land. Uh, Roe versus Wade was not made pursuant to the Constitution. It's unconstitutional, so it was not the supreme law of the land. So the states should have never followed it. And so that was a big premise behind our legislation. And ultimately, last year, the Supreme Court agreed with that, that it was unconstitutional. And so, you know, as we told people for, for years, you know, if the court, if what the court says conflicts with what the Constitution says, which do you follow? The court or the Constitution? Well, which do you swear an oath to? Obviously the Constitution, not to the court. That was, that was one reason why it was opposed by the pro-life movement, that they disagreed with that approach in, in dealing with Roe versus Wade. But, but since the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs decision, the the other reason has become the, the the primary reason, and that is our bills support equal protection. So the 14th Amendment of the Constitution says, no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Well, we obviously believe that a fetus from the moment of fertilization is a person made in the image of God. Well, okay, well, then what does equal protection of the laws mean? Well, what are the laws that protect my life? What are the laws that protect your life? Mm-hmm. The homicide and assault laws prohibit everyone from, you know, from murdering us, from committing homicide against us. Uh, it's illegal for anyone to, to murder us. Well, that's what our bills do as well. And which, you know, I think for most people should sound okay. What's the controversial part of that? Right. That's what my um, question is. What, why is it opposed? <laughs> What's so controversial? You know, like I said at a, a, a committee hearing the other day, I said, I'm an abolitionist, which means I hold the supposedly extreme position that murdering anyone should be illegal for everyone. What the pro-life lobby organizations have made a controversy of is that they oppose the mothers, you know, procure these abortions or today more and more are performing them performing them themselves, they oppose those mothers being subject to any legal accountability whatsoever. In fact, they've for 50 years, the pro-life lobby and the pro-life politicians have written into their legislation explicit exclusions that the mother can never be prosecuted. Um, and so that's been the position of the pro-life movement for 50 years and, and beyond. Okay, so... Are these pro-life groups, these lobbyists, are they predominantly people who would call themselves Christians or not? They are. I, I think they are. They're the ones that I've certainly encountered. 
their organizations by and large they're run by many folks who are professing Christians but they are um, the organizations themselves some of them claim to be Christian organizations I think most of them try to stay neutral or secular but there are you know at least the people running them are most of them are professing Christians at least in my experience in my observation okay so way back when I there, you know there were various groups. There were the groups that would sit in front of abortion clinics and not let people go through. And they were, you know, modeling their reaction to abortion the same way that maybe in the 60s, people were protesting the war in Vietnam. And so they were using this, you know, we protest what's going on. And then there were those who would push for legislation that would say abortion is wrong, whatever. And then there were others who said, but we need to do an incremental approach. So if I were going to categorize the different approaches, I'd say there's the step-by-step incremental, let's get this, and then we'll get the next thing, and then we'll get the next thing. And then there would be the principled perspective that say that says, let's have it be what we want from the outset. Why compromise eight weeks to 15 weeks to 20 weeks? If we're saying that this is a person, then why would we be parsing out when it would be okay to end that life? So would you agree that that's the two ways that these things sort of go? Let's do it step-by-step incrementally. Let's state our position, regardless of it looks like we'll win on the first pass, but we've got to be right, not only with the Constitution, but with God's law. Well, I think that's part of it, but I don't think that really explains everything that's going on. Because if it's just an issue of of, of incrementalism, which, which is certainly part of it, then then how would that explain the pro-life organizations coming out? Even two weeks ago, I was in Missouri testifying for a bill. And they allowed two people to testify in favor of the bill, and it was an abolition bill to provide equal protection. They allowed two people in favor and two two people against. Two of us testified in favor of the bill, and then the two people who testified against the bill was Missouri Right to Life and Missouri Campaign, or, or Life Campaign Missouri, I forget the exact name, two pro-life organizations that camp, that testified against the bill. And so it's not just that they oppose or not just that they support increments and we oppose, you know, unrighteous increments. That's part of it. We can talk about that. But they're actually opposing equal protection. Uh, Last year, for example, we had a bill in Louisiana and 77 pro-life organizations, which, you know, there's, there's thousands of pro-life organizations across the country working on many fronts, doing lots of great things. But this, these 77 organizations made up, you know, the vast majority of what I would call the pro-life lobby. That is those organizations whose focus is the, the legislative advocacy. So the bulk of, of those organizations came out and published a letter just a few hours before we were having a, a floor debate on the House floor there in Louisiana, we'd already passed committee seven to two, gotten our bill passed. We got to the House floor in Louisiana and these 77 organizations led by National Right to Life, Susan B. Anthony, March for Life, a lot of organizations people have heard of came out with a letter, again, not just opposing taking such a big increment, but opposing equal protection. 
they said that they do not believe and they oppose it ever being illegal for a mother to get an abortion for for it to be illegal for the mother to get an abortion they believe it should only be illegal for the abortionist you know for the planned parenthood for the, those kind of folks but that the mother herself should have zero legal uh, culpability uh, and, and accountability yes part of it is an issue about increments but that's that doesn't really explain why they're actually opposing equal protection so is this because they're afraid of losing support financial support if they were to say a woman who goes into an abortion clinic and says here's my money i want to leave not pregnant why are they concerned about not identifying what she's done or what she's about to do as killing you know i don't know if I mean, part of it uh, i don't know everybody's motives and i certainly don't want to impugn people's motives without knowing what they are everybody has their own reasons I'm sure, I mean, obviously it would be, you know, much less popular to say that, hey, mothers who kill their preborn children should be accountable to the law, just like a mother who kills her one week old child should be accountable to the law. Or like, you know, just last week, there was a mother in New Mexico that had a, you know, had a baby and just deposited him in the trash can immediately. And she was arrested and was being charged. And yet if she had done that, you know, using an abortion pill before the baby had exited, pro-life lobby says that she should be completely immune from prosecution for that. So, again, I, I a lot of it, the pro-life lobby describes the, the mother as the second victim of abortion, the baby being the first victim and the mother herself being the second victim. And they claim that, you know, even no matter how egregious the mother's conduct um, she can be taking the abortion pills herself on the steps of the Supreme Court, which I myself witnessed about a year and a half ago during oral arguments for the Dobbs case. She can be doing that, shouting her abortion, you know, doing satanic rituals, you know, which is, is, is a real thing, you know, satanic abortion rituals. And yet, nevertheless, she should still not be subject to the law. Uh, and, that, and that's their position. And again, I don't know what all the reasons are that they hold it. Some of them, I think, may be, may be sincere and some maybe not. Okay, so let's kind of unpack this a little bit. There are women, we know for a fact that in communist China, if they were had become pregnant with more than one child at one point, that they were forcibly put into a situation where they had no choice, but their child was murdered. So in that regard, I think it'd be very clear for people to see that mother was a second victim. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And all, and all of our, that's, that's a real victim situation, you know, and all of our bills, uh, have provisions, um, either explicitly in the bill or it's already in the law. So it doesn't have to be in the bill that applies to that situation, which is called duress in most states. In some states, it's called coercion where someone is physically threatening the mother with violence if she does not go through with that. Right. And yeah, that, that mother is a true victim in that situation. And, and, and yeah, our bills would not in any way hold her accountable. Okay. But if we're taking the position that you say the pro-life lobby has, then a woman who fornicates regularly and uses abortion if her method of birth control hasn't worked, they have a hard time seeing that as the willful taking of life. 
At least from a legal perspective, yes. And that, that's why some people use the, um, you know, talking about the incremental debate, some people use the analogy of a, or the metaphor of a football game. Well, the pro-life movement is just going for, you know, one yard at a time, and we're, we want to throw a Hail Mary every time. But it's actually different than that. We actually have two very different end zones, pro-life movement's end zone. You can actually see it right now, actually playing out what, what, what they consider success because you go look at pro-life news sources and the pro-life lobby organizations, and they're declaring right now that there are between 12 and 14 states that are quote-unquote abortion-free. And what they mean by that is that abortions performed by clinics are illegal. And yet in those same states, because of the exceptions written into the law by the pro-life lobby, it is not illegal for mothers to obtain, to order and to obtain and to take uh, abortion pills. And, and, and they're doing that. For example, here in Texas, just from one abortion pill provider, over 19,000 pills annually estimated coming into Texas here and abortions taking place on Texas soil. And that's just one state that the pro-life movement has said is abortion free. And yet, I don't think 19,000-plus abortions taking place on our soil makes us abortion-free, and yet the pro-life movement says it is. I have a friend who moved out of California a number of years ago and came back for a visit and said how her heart sank when she saw the billboards that said, welcome to California, you can have an abortion here. It seems to me that the more radicalized the we have a right to kill children for whatever reason group is that wouldn't purport to be Christian at all, the stronger they seem to get, because now the threat after Dobbs, of course, is that laws can be passed, you would think that there would be a greater divide between them and this lobbying group that says, no, we're really not on their side. But you could say, and and maybe this will be offensive to some people, that they're actually more in league with each other then they would be in league with you. You mean between the pro-abortion groups yes. and the pro-life groups? Yes. You know, at least when it comes to the mother, they they are in agreement that it should not be illegal for a mother to take abortion pills, um, that as long as the mother does an abortion unassisted, then that should not be illegal. You know, both the pro-abortion movement and the pro-life movement you know, seem to be in agreement on that. In fact, when I was, I mentioned in, in Missouri, the pro-life movement testified against our bill. There was someone there it was reported to me that there was someone there from the pro-abortion lobby that was getting ready to step up and testify, but then was told, oh no, the pro-life groups are going to testify against this bill. So you don't have to. Hmm. It's like, wow. That, I mean, that really puts it into contrast that, you know, that the, both the pro-abortion movement and the pro-life movement are allied, at least in, in, in their opposition against equal protection. Now, I've watched a number of your testimonies and videos where you've been talking on this subject. And whereas it's fine to appeal to the Constitution, you appeal to the fact that God's word says that life cannot be taken, that God determines how life can be taken. So there are provisions in the law that say someone who takes a life on the testimony of witnesses that this actually happened, that person's life can be taken. 
Do you find that a lot of people who should be supporting this perspective, that their main issue is that they're not committed to God's law? I think so. I mean, I think that's that's why I think it's important that we approach this issue first and foremost, not not pragmatically saying, hey, what's what do we think is going to work? But instead coming at it and saying, hey, what does God say? What does God say we should do? And then, yeah, we can come up with strategies and things like that. But but ultimately, we've got to do what he says and and let him determine the outcome of that. You know, biblically, we see you know on this question of equal protection. Obviously, we see it's the role of government to protect innocent life. We see that from the very beginning in Genesis nine. Whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. Uh, that's repeated. You know, we have that in the New Testament, Romans 13, that the, the government is our God's ministers of justice, and they do not bear the sword in vain. And, and their primary duty, again, is to protect, to provide justice for innocent life. We see God, you know, there's a passage many are familiar with, you know, if men are struggling together and they harm a pregnant woman so that she gives birth prematurely, if there is harm, then that's where we get the phrase eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, etc. And the question then is, well, if there's harm to whom? To the mother or to the baby? And the answer is yes. yes the answer both. is both, right? And, and that is harm done to the mother and harm done to the baby are both receive the same justice. Um, so that's where we get a principle from equal protection. But we we have even more, you know, that's, that's the principle there. Uh, but we have an actual precept in Scripture of equal protection that God says repeatedly throughout Scripture. He says to the civil magistrates that you shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall not show partiality in judgment. Um, and and what is what is partiality? Well, you think about um, like statues or statuettes of Lady Justice, you know, holding a sword in one hand. And, you know, maybe a book in the other or scales, scales of justice in the other hand. But in all of them, she has a blindfold on. Right. And partiality means that you're taking the blindfold off whenever you're judging, judging. You're not judging just upon the evidence or upon the facts of the case. You're actually looking at the, the parties to the case and saying, OK, this person's strong. This person's weak. I'm going to go with the strong person or this person's rich. This person's poor or this person's powerful this person is not powerful this person is a man this person is a woman this person has this skin color this, this person has that or in this case this person is born or this person is not yet born and god says he hates that he hates he hates unequal weights and measures they're an abomination to him and, and we even see in scripture that god says that whoever condemns the righteous or that condemns the innocent and the one who acquits the wicked that they are an abomination to God. And that's exactly what we're doing when we say that, okay, we're going to condemn this innocent child and acquit the mother, right? Not, not a mother under duress, but a mother who knowingly, voluntarily, willfully takes a pill and causes the death of her own child herself, right? I mean, that's, God says he hates that. And again, that's abundant throughout scripture. And, uh, and that, again, that should be our foundation for how we approach this issue. You know what it reminds me of, Bradley? There was a time where it was becoming was prevalent. Maybe it's still prevalent, but it doesn't get news that someone's coming into your house to um, burglarize it. 
and there was ice on the front porch and he slipped and fell and that he could then sue because he was hurt as he was trying to burglarize your house. It seems to me that when the approach comes that we want to protect women from unsanitary conditions in abortion clinics and we want to hold the abortion clinic, which under current law in many cases is just a business doing what people want it to do. In other words, at least at this point, they're not pulling people off the street to do it. So it's sort of like we're going to, as you put it earlier, regulate unlawful activity as if somehow or other we're doing the society a favor. Right. And and whenever we do that, you know, whenever we regulate it in the sense that, you know, we just, you know, we allow it to continue, but we just kind of put, put a fence around it or we may clean it up and make it more sanitary. You know, we just, we're just legitimizing it whenever we do that. And, and in fact, you know, the data shows that, you know, whenever we do that, we actually help the big, uh, abortion organizations like Planned Parenthood, because what do the what do big businesses like? They actually like regulations. They, in fact, they write a lot of them themselves. Why? Because it regulates because they, they they can afford to comply with the regulations, whereas the smaller businesses cannot. And so, what ends up happening in this you know in this industry, abortion industry, is that the pro life regulations end up regulating a lot of the mom and pop, if you will, uh, small abortion businesses out of business and brings more of the, the market share to Planned Parenthood. And you can go look at data that shows this. And even in a Supreme Court decision just a few years ago, that one of the justices was even, was even pointing this out that Planned Parenthood can abide by these regulations while these, these smaller abortion clinics can't. And so, yeah, that, that's not the way to deal with crime to, to just regulate it. Um, that just, it just perpetuates it. So you said something that they sanitize it. I think that the church has sanitized abortion. Um, in many cases, there is a Sunday in January that is set aside to call it Right to Life Sunday. And there are people who will then go march on Washington or march on their state capitol. But it makes me wonder now and say, why would these people be against the idea of there being a time where abortion didn't exist. So you often hear the expression, it isn't so much that we want to make abortion illegal, we want to make it unthinkable. Well, that's like saying, we don't want to make speeding on the freeway unlawful, we just want to make it unthinkable. Somehow or other, the law keeps people in in many cases from speeding. So the law actually helps achieve the unthinkable ends, don't you think? Absolutely. You know, the way that I look at it is that there's 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 three functions of the law, and and ultimately we we live in a a fallen world with fallen people, and so the idea that we could make a particular sin unthinkable is impossible, right? That's in some ways that's saying that we can be like God. Right. Only God can make sin unthinkable. But there's really there's there's three functions here of the law. You know, number one is that the law is a tutor and the law teaches people. And in this case, teaches people when life begins, uh, how much we value life. And hopefully people would look at that law and they would say maybe if they've done something or maybe if they're tempted to do something, they would repent of it. They would say, you know what? This is wrong. The law says that it's wrong. I repent 
Uh, but if it doesn't lead someone to repent, you know, for the right reasons, then the next function of the law is to restrain. It's to restrain evil, uh, to deter people from from murdering one another. You know, we have there's about twenty five thousand homicides of born people in this country every year, which is which is horrific. But it's it is illegal. That's why there's only twenty five thousand. There are may, way more murders of preborn babies. Why? Because it's not illegal. It's not a, not illegal anywhere for the mother, and in many states, you know, it's not illegal for any or you know for doctors or anybody else. So that's the kind of the second function of the law is to restrain or deter, and that's of course what we would hope. You know that an abolition bill of equal protection would do would deter most of these abortions from taking place, and I believe that they that it would, just like law, other laws against homicide do. But then the third role of the law is that if if someone is not repentant, or if they're not uh, restrained, then it's to provide responsibility or to provide justice for the victim. And that is the that's the third function of the law is to to vindicate, in this case, the image of God, you know, which has been slain and to be God's ministers of justice, which God demands. I mean, God specifically demands justice for the fatherless in, in Scripture. So that's what you know, that's what our bills do. And that's that's why they do them. And, and I think that's, um, you know, that that's what all Christians should support. I watched a panel discussion you were on, and you made the comment that when you formulate a bill, people come to you and they kind of take you aside as a very naive litigator or um, lawyer and say, you know, people are laughing at you with this language. And you say, or you said in response, what an honor. (laughs) Explain why you would consider it an honor to have people ridicule you when you're clearly stating abortion is murder, murder is wrong. Well, I, what I was specifically talking about in that instance was that uh, a legislator had informed us that we were being laughed at because we were using God's word. We were using the Bible in, in, in advocating for equal protection, right? We, the Constitution is our side, but so is God's word, and we believe it's sharper than a two-edged sword and, and um, it pierces to the heart. And so we should absolutely use it. It's the foundation. We can argue, we can use sources beyond that, authorities beyond that, but that's the highest authority. So we, we have to refer to that and we have to use that. And, and yeah, it's an honor, you know, when, when, uh, when you do use God's word and, and then people laugh at that because just like Jesus said, bless are you when people revile you and all kind of, call you all sorts of names, you know, for his sake. And, and that's what we're doing whenever we're using his word. And then people laugh at us, you know, we just see in Psalm two, he's laughing at them. He he gets the last laugh. Right. And I think somewhere along the line, you know, you have this concept that ideas have consequences. Well, I think we can see a lot of the consequences that have happened since the country decided, well, throw up our hands. It's the law of the land. We have to obey. But why do you think people were so ready to give away the store with Roe v. Wade? Um, do you think it had earlier roots in terms of not taking God's law, his word, seriously? I mean, we have a couple of things going on. Number number one, I think most people 
you know, d- didn't have a proper view of life and when life begins and the value of life. And we saw, you know, even um, we saw a, a devaluing of life and a devaluing of motherhood and fatherhood that had been going on for decades at that point and contraceptions works, you know, was, was exploding. And so, you know, even right after Roe versus Wade decision, even the Southern Baptist church came out and essentially, you know, supported it, uh, which they later recanted. But, you know, it's just, a lot of people just didn't have a good, good position on the whole subject at the time. So I think that was part of it. So a lot of people just didn't, or, or, or many others just didn't, really didn't care. Um, they didn't know, really know what to think about it because I think they weren't being properly um, taught by, by pastors, by their shepherds. Um, the, the other part of it was that, you know, we had over time, you know, we had evolved in this country to a, a, a bad view of the Supreme Court and its authority and treating it like it's God, like it was like, like the Supreme Court is the last word over over what the law is and what it should be, even it com- even if it completely contradicts the, what's called the highest law of the land, which is the Constitution. And so, yeah, I think there were quite a number of things going on there. I've seen you be cross-examined, I don't know, questioned in hearings and such. And it seems to be a big item to say, okay, so abortion is outlawed. No abortions are allowed. You're breaking the law if you provide one or if you get one. And so it's pretty easy to see how you could apply the sanctions to abortionists if they, you close them down, if they can't operate as a business, you know, they lose their customers. But the concern was, are you going to send mothers to jail? Will this be retroactive? How will you enforce it? And I've heard you address all those, but I'd like my listeners to hear your answers. Well, first, it's definitely not retroactive. That would be unjust. That would be unconstitutional in both the U.S. and state constitutions. Right, Going backwards and prosecuting or trying to prosecute someone who's gotten an abortion before a law like we're proposing would go into effect you know, it's just wrong. And none of our bills would do that. In fact, all of these bills explicitly say the opposite, that they cannot be and should not be applied retroactively. So that's that's that. And anytime someone throws that out, you know, they either don't know what they're talking about or more often they're just lying because because they just want to make it sound extreme, you know, like, like that we're going to go back, you know, to millions of women and go throw them in jail. That's, that's not what the bill's about at all. But... You know, that is, we, we do want, you know, once the bill would become, get passed and become effective, then we want everybody subject to the law. And again, the, the primary purpose here is deterrence, is to deter people from aborting their children in the first place. And, and we know that it will work, right? Not 100%. We know it won't work 100%, but we know it will work uh, a very large percentage. And you can even see that from the pro-life movement, many many of which... Many, whenever they throw out these arguments, like, well, how are we going to enforce that? Many of them are the same ones that are publicly proclaiming that, well, we've abolished or we've banned abortion in Texas or in Mississippi or Arkansas or whatever state, whenever they've never enforced their their law against any abortion clinic there. Why are they claiming that it's so effective? Because of the deterrent factor of it. Right. Abortion clinics are leaving. They're stopping doing them or they're going underground 
um, which is exactly what would happen with our bill as well. You know, it would be the deterrent factor, which would eliminate most abortions from occurring in that state. And um, okay, just to stop you a second. Yep. So, in a sense, you're proposing an incremental end because you're not saying man will stop being sinful. You're saying that as a society, we're not going to give an okay to this activity because your bill will never prevent sinful people from doing sinful things. Well, and it, yeah, and, it, and it, there's a way in which everything is an increment, right? Whether it's, you know, incremental justice, all right, today abortion, tomorrow some other injustice, uh, or whether it be a geographic increment, right? Today, Texas, tomorrow, California, or what have you. Or, you know, to, you know, this decade, the U.S., you know, tomorrow, the rest of the world to abolish abortion, right? Everything is an increment of that's in, in one sense or another. What, what we're opposed to is what I would call increments that compromise principles or what I think the Bible would call an iniquitous decree, um, that explicitly disobeys God or, or explicitly disobeys the Constitution, which as long as the Constitution is within law that doesn't contradict what God says, the Constitution is the highest law of the land, and Romans 13 says we should be subject to the governing authorities, and the Constitution is the highest governing authority. You know, so the problem with many of these pro-life increments is not that they're increments, it's that they're increments that violate God's law, or violate the Constitution, dehumanize, you know, human beings, or approve of evil. That's that's the problem. They show partiality. Okay, so let me say this. People will logically ask, let's say they're thinking, maybe I should get on board with this perspective. Within the laws that you write, do you then lay out what the penalties or the sanctions should be if somebody violates it? I I heard you in one of your talks saying the legislation is the law, and then you have the you know executive that has to carry out the law, and then you have the judicial that basically looks at whether or not this law is within the bounds of the Constitution. So do the bills that you propose state what the sanction will be against the abortionist, what the sanction should be against the mother? The bills do not. Um, and that's because the bills were really not creating new law when we're, when we're doing this. There's already a law against homicide and assault in every single state. So our bills are not creating some new law against fetal homicide or or fetal assault. You know, our our bills just say, hey, the same law that already exists that outlaws homicide of a born person, most of them are have an exception either explicitly written in there or the courts have interpreted it into it that allows for abortion. Our bills just say we're taking that away. No more exception. It now applies to everyone from the moment of fertilization. And so we don't, we don't write in the penalties into our bills because there's already penalties that are in, that are in the law, you know, that provide penalty ranges for homicide or for assault. And so that's why we don't have to write them into our bills. We already have these penalty ranges that would apply if these, if this conduct was committed against a child after birth. And we're just saying, Hey, same thing before birth. Um, now, it is important to point out that, that that doesn't mean that those are the only penalties available, right? If a state has a death penalty or if a state has life in prison, it doesn't mean that, that those are the only penalties available for prosecutors to consider or for juries to consider. 
the process, there's a lot of discretion left to prosecutors. They ultimately have total discretion to, to decide whether they're going to prosecute at all and then to decide what they're going to prosecute for and what charges they're going to pursue and then what, what sentence they're going to pursue. Um, and then it's up to the jury whether to convict and then what the sentence, you know, that should be applied is. And so there's a lot of, and ultimately the governors in most states or a board of parole and pardons can even pardon people. So there's this idea that with, with our bills that all, all the bill is trying to do is take away the discriminatory language that says that's in current law that says homicide and assault laws don't apply to preborn babies. Our bills just remove that. Then, then, Hey, now we're following the constitution and we're providing equal protection of the laws. Then it's up to the executive branch, you know, standing before the judicial branch uh, with, you know, jury of peers and grand juries of peers to determine, okay, what is justice on a case by case basis? Should this person even be investigated? Should this mother be prosecuted? Should this mother be given immunity to testify against this abortionist? All of those things are really a case-by-case determination that has to be made that our bill would allow for instead of what's currently happening under the pro-life bills, which say that there is no case-by-case determination, just every mother is innocent, period, end of story. It's sobering in as much as um, the average rank-and-file citizen, let alone the rank-and-file Christian doesn't even understand how jurisprudence works, how our judicial system works, the very things that you just outlined. And so one of the things that impresses me about you, Bradley, is that you do have a vision for victory, and you're not dissuaded if God takes you home before you see that victory. You rest on the fact that doing the right thing matters, and you can expect forward motion. And so I think people need to sort of reorient. Okay. This will be a process. The law goes into effect. Now we'll have disputes on how it should be applied. Um, I can think of that there would be women who would flagrantly say, I am taking this pill right now. What are you going to do to me? And then the people would have to decide what that is. But I think you would agree that the people at the, the lowest or the grassroots have to have this appreciation for what God says. Otherwise, when the next administration that may not be pro-life comes into play, that you have all sorts of new laws. Ultimately, this is not going to be solved by political or even civil ends. It's going to be solved as people repent of their sins, whether it's of abortion, participating it, driving someone to have it, or just being apathetic about the reality. Exactly. And that's really why the work that we do is ultimately, it's ultimately about exposing evil. It's about exposing evil, even in our own ranks and even in our own hearts, about exposing our own apathy, about exposing the the bigotry that we have in our own hearts, where we we're just fine with these laws protecting our lives, but oh, we don't want these laws protecting our neighbor's life in the same way, right? We're, we're, it, it's exposing that we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves, as, as James calls the second greatest commandment, calls it the royal law. And he says, if you, you know, if you say, if you follow the, I love your neighbor as yourself, you do well, but if you show partiality, then you commit transgressions, what James says. And that, that's what we want people to see that if you are, 
you know, if, if you, if you have what I would call born privilege, you know, and you're just fine with these laws, you know, that prohibit people from killing you and that have penalties. If people kill you, if, if you're just fine with those laws for, you know, or those laws for me, but not for thee, not, not for the preborn children, then again, it reveals something about ourselves. And that's something that, again, our focus is really the church and um, awakening the church to the state of its own heart and the legislation and the other work that we do. Uh, obviously, we want the legislation to pass, but it, it, in one sense, it is a means to an end to, to reveal to the church the state of its own heart and to call fellow Christians to repentance and repentance, not just being hearers, but doers of the word. Right. I think a lot of people have uh, made an abstraction, the sheep and the goats. They just think, oh, well, I'm going to be fine. I don't have to worry. But, you know, all those aborted children will stand as witnesses against murderous hearts complacency, etc. So when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was, you know, in prison, well, in many cases, the unborn are imprisoned in a place that our society has by and large said, it's okay, laws don't apply there. And so I think uh, it's important for people to realize the first area that has to be conquered is between their ears. They have to get really serious. I'll give you an example. Um, a friend of mine recently had a miscarriage. She has a number of children and she was, and her husband and the rest of the family was looking forward to this child becoming part of the family. Well, she had to be taken to the emergency room and they kept referring to what had happened and what they were dealing with as products of conception. In her right. delirious state, when, you know, blood pressure low and everything else, she asserted, this is not a product of conception. This is my baby. And then they all started using the term your baby, right? Right. Something as seemingly insignificant as that, we have to create a narrative that's consistent with scripture and then see that's how hearts and minds change. Sin should be unthinkable, but let's face it, that comes with the Holy Spirit. You don't get it some other way. That's exactly right. So let's say people want to get involved, they want to support you, they want to find out what's going on. How would they contact you? Give us some website addresses and ways maybe to contact you directly. Yeah, so the best place is going to be through our organization, the Foundation to Abolish Abortion. Folks can go, go to faa.life, that's faa.life and visit us there. And we have lots of resources there as well. One that I think, you know, one of my favorites is called Biblical Principles on Equal Protection, where it's, it's almost like a, a, a catechism, if you will, that has kind of seven principles on equal protection and then, you know, numerous scriptures that go along with those for people to really see the foundation for what we're talking about here. And there, there's other resources on there. We actually submitted a brief in the Dobbs case, uh, that, that overturned Roe. Um, that, that we have there on the website as well and lots of other things. So that'd be the best place to start at FAA.life. FAA.life. Very good. Okay. And then how about you directly? Um, are you on Facebook? Is there a way in which people can engage you directly? Yeah, probably following me on Twitter uh, at Bradley W. Pierce uh, on Twitter is probably the best way to to interact with me directly. All right. One final question before we go. You're 
I don't know if you like the term activist, but you're promoting action in line with scripture. But as I said earlier, you're also a husband, a dad, a dad to a number of children, and you're a homeschooling family. Do you find that the work you do is in conflict with that? Are are you pulled away from your family because of it, or does it strengthen your family? I think it's all it's all part of this. It's all part of our mission, you know, together as a family. Of uh, my children go on many of the trips I go on with me, or my wife goes with me, and and we do it as a family. It's definitely a good homeschool homeschool experience to do that. And so we do it as a family and I really see it as, you know, a lot of these things, um, you know, we didn't get here overnight where we are today in this country with, with the way that we view life and the way that we view all human life, but particularly before birth, uh, we didn't get here overnight. We're probably not going to get out of here overnight. And, and so I certainly view, you know, like you were talking about earlier, um, this is, this, the, the vision here certainly goes beyond my life. And I believe it's one of our duties as Christians. You know, we need to start, we need to start looking beyond our own life and stop, stop being so short term in our thinking and be thinking about the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that. And, and so doing this work and uh, doing it alongside my children and talking about it and working on it together, it just, you know, to me, it all goes together, and it's just part of the the, um, the what should be the normal Christian life. You know, it's been my observation that people that I knew, and although I didn't know you when you were being homeschooled, you're right in the age of my children, that the opportunity to not be inside the box of government schools helps you not only explore things that, you know, God may have given you an inclination for, but you don't get so much into the group think. In other words, you're allowed to look at things. My question, I guess, in in conclusion is, what were some of the greatest influences in your life that led you to the point that you're like a rock star to some people? Well, I don't think you probably look at yourself as a rock star, (laughs) and you probably didn't when you were growing up. What were the influences that helped get you on the road of conviction? Well, um, I don't know, lot, lot, lots of things. I mean, first and foremost, my parents, they're, they're my number one influence on, on me and, and their commitment to God's word and, and treating it seriously. And it's inerrant and it's infallible and we can understand it. We can live by it. It's good. His law is not burdensome. It's for our own good. I would say that first and foremost starts with my parents, but then, there's certainly lots of lots of books and mentors and authors and you know church history sources and and lots of things that I've had been blessed by over the years. So I, I, it's hard for me to pinpoint any of those. I think God God used a lot of those in my life. So in other words, if I'm going to sum it up, you were exposed to truth. It was reinforced in your home, and that led you to explore other areas that maybe your parents didn't focus on. I don't know if they were English majors or history majors, but you pursued things, but you had the grounding, you had the foundation to evaluate things in terms of it's biblical or not. Is that correct? Yes, that's definitely was the heart and soul of our home growing up is was really what what is biblical. 
And uh, that was the foundation my parents gave me. And that's the journey that I'm still on, <laughs> you know, is is trying to, you know, journey of sanctification that we're all on. And that is, God, how can how, how can I be more conformed to your word, more conformed to your image, Lord Jesus? And and that's that's a journey I'm still on and still have a long ways to go. But I'm grateful for what God's done in me and and grateful for all the things that I don't deserve. Yes. Isn't that the truth? All right. Well, Bradley, thank you. Listeners make use of his website, faa.life. And I hope that you'll keep us posted in terms of how things are going. And we'll certainly be praying for you, but putting those prayers also into action in terms of how to further the idea that we don't need to fear man, we need to fear God and thus obey him. Amen. All right. Listeners out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you get a hold of me. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.